0: Hi everyone, this is Yin and welcome to Growth From Failure. I wanted to create this show to highlight extraordinary people that inspire and motivate me to level up, but with a slight twist. I'll have conversations with people from a variety of professions, from investors to entrepreneurs to educators to athletes, because I enjoy hearing a really good success story from any discipline. But I wanted to view their story more through a lens of struggle or hardship and even failure, Because for me, the biggest lessons learned and opportunities to grow aren't from the wins or triumphs, but from the setbacks and defeat. So instead of reviewing their highlight reel with all the success and accomplishments, we'll talk about some of the bloopers that includes the mistakes and the rocky roads, which can be glossed over, but oftentimes more impactful to their mindset and success. I hope hearing their journey inspires you to not fear failing, but motivates you to reflect to keep learning, and ultimately to keep growing. This is the story of Amber Freed, founder of SLC6A1Connect. In this episode, you'll hear Amber's incredible story, how she grew up in poverty and was able to escape a very challenging environment. She adopted her sisters when she was just a teenager and had worked three jobs in college to support them and her, And all along the way, she excelled in college, and she felt that focusing on education would be a key to getting out of a very tough situation. Now, you'd think that this background would be the reason why she's on my show to begin with, but her story came across my desk because of her son, Maxwell. While Amber was soaring in her career as an equity research analyst, she fulfilled a lifelong dream of becoming a mother. Her twins, Maxwell and Riley, turned three this year, And while her daughter Riley is healthy and thriving, her son Maxwell they found out has a rare genetic disorder called SLC6A1. It is so rare that it doesn't have a formal name and it's labeled based on its genetic location. SLC6A1 is a disease that essentially wreaks havoc on the neurological system and causes developmental disabilities. Amber and her family were told that they weren't sure how long Maxwell has to live But with nearly 6,000 rare diseases in the world, his chances of getting treatment were not great. And so Amber Freed is fighting like a mother. You'll hear the story of an incredible fighter. And as you could imagine, right now, doctors and scientists are pretty overwhelmed with a lot of stuff on their plate, whether it's COVID or the other research projects that they have. So a rare monogenic disease that affects less than 50 people around the world isn't getting much attention right now, but Amber has made it her mission. In the last two, three years, SLC 6A1 Connect is focused on elevating awareness and creating an ecosystem that can systematically help fund and consolidate research and treatment efforts. She wants to help other families raise funds and awareness so that they don't have to go through what her family went through. And with COVID-19 affecting Maxwell's treatment and his progress, Amber's family is racing against the clock. Thank you for listening to this story, and if you can, please get in touch with Amber or me directly to find out how to help. Thank you. Hi, Amber. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, gosh, I'm thrilled that you're on. Thank you so much. I know that our listeners would have heard a short summary of your journey before the show started, and I'm so excited that they hear directly from you as to what SLC 6A1 is, I mean, the history behind it, and most importantly, your son's health. But I know that the listeners really love hearing about background stories, and your childhood story is phenomenal and special on its own. And so, if you don't mind, before talking about SLC 6A1, if we could rewind your story a little bit and really share with our listeners where you grew up.
1: I grew up in generational poverty, and it was really plagued by addiction issues. Both of my parents, while very well meaning, suffered from alcoholism and prescription pill abuse. We moved a lot throughout small towns in Montana, Texas, and Colorado. Both of them were not really equipped to take care of themselves or each other, let alone three girls.
0: Was there a city or state that you associated the most with your childhood? I would probably say Billings,
1: Montana. We live next to the biggest meth bust in Montana history at the time. And I remember the SWAT team breaking down our neighbor's door and someone getting shot on our front doorsteps running from the house. There were similar stories when we moved to Pueblo, Colorado. I have younger sisters. They're twins and they're two years younger than me. And growing up, there really needed to be an adult in the household, and my parents could not rise to the occasion, so I really did, not only for myself, but because I loved my little sisters so much and fulfilled that role of mother and father to them and made sure they got dressed for school and had cookies for Valentine's Day. I think I realized very early on that the only way to break the cycle of poverty was through education and that I had to go to college and. I had to receive scholarships in order to do that. My goal in life was to become a success and go back and help my own community and share my story so that hopefully other people could break the cycle of poverty.
0: And so where did you end up going to college or deciding to go to college?
1: Well, I worked very hard. I was the president of every club in high school. I was my valedictorian. I took care of my sisters very well. And I received a full ride through Janice investors, as well as the Broncos and some other groups to attend the University of Denver. The program at the time was called Scores for Scholars, but I actually received so many scholarships to go to college that I was able to give some back. The University of Denver is a school that attracts a lot of Money. The tuition, I think, right now is about $55,000 a year. And when I grew up, if somebody was wearing Abercrombie jeans, I just remember thinking, my goodness, they have made it in life. And there I was on my freshman floor in the dorm, and everybody had Abercrombie jeans. And it just blew my mind that everybody else wasn't shopping at Ross with me. I met wonderful people, I was amazed by their families. And the best thing about when their parents came to visit was that nobody went to detox and we could all just go out to dinner and have a really nice time. I loved how comfortable it was. And I finally had my own family embedded in friendships. It was so happy. It was difficult though, because My sisters were left behind, and so I was still working three jobs to financially support them and ensure they were getting their homework done and helping them fill out college applications, and they were actually emancipated from my parents, so they had no legal guardian, and I fulfilled that role entirely for them.
0: So while you're at the University of Denver, you worked three jobs to support them, and you were basically their primary caregiver.
1: That's right. I would waitress and cocktail waitress. And I even sold beef jerky to make sure they'd have enough money for Christmas presents.
0: Incredible. So what was your educational focus or your major outside of working the three jobs? But did you find a passion in terms of, oh, this is a subject or area that I never knew I could love? And what did you study?
1: Choosing a major was hard for me because I love learning and there's just so many incredible fields to go into. So I struggled between violin performance, biology, and business. Very different fields, I should say. I settled on business, though, because it's the best of every world. Businesses can be successful in anything they choose, and if you choose a field of just studying business, you can look at companies that kind of fulfill every area.
0: And so what was your first job after graduating?
1: I finished my undergrad and graduate degrees in a little over four years and I went to work in public accounting at KPMG. I soon realized that accounting is the language of business. I understood financial statements forward and backward, but I was always looking in the rear view mirror And after I did a couple of audits, I became bored very quickly because I was doing the same thing over again. And I loved looking at the decisions companies made and asking them why they made those at the time. I realized my passion was really in the stock market and trying to become an expert in an industry focus and predict what the market would do.
0: So you go from accounting to stock analysis. Did you look for another job or how was the next job search for you after KPMG?
1: Interestingly enough, I shared with my boss at the time that I was interested in becoming an analyst and becoming an expert in research. And she said, if I have to lose you, I want my husband to hire you. And so that's how I made the transition.
0: So then you start equity research. What was that like? And where was that?
1: Oh, I I loved it. I went to work for a long, short equity hedge fund. It was just incredible. What I loved about it is that you're never good. If you have a 50% batting average, like you're doing okay. My favorite part of the job was that it doesn't matter how much research you do and how much conviction you have in your picks, Every day, the stock market has this incredible mechanism of humbling you and reminding you that you're stupid and you're never going to master your career.
0: But you stayed there for a very long time because you you enjoyed that feeling. And so how long were you in that role? I moved around a little bit. I ended up leaving a job that I loved at RK Capital
1: because we had to relocate for my husband's career. And when we came back to Denver, I started with Janice Henderson investors who weirdly enough had put me through college and I realized halfway through my interview that I should have brought that up to every person that interviewed me. So I emailed them and said, oh, just so you know, (laughs) this needs to come full circle. I loved Janice. What I loved about people was the intellectual curiosity on the floor everybody's there. It was just so much fun to talk and banter about different ideas and why something may or may not work. And every day, just waking up and being able to meet with management teams and key opinion leaders in every field and understand why and how they think a certain way and really having the greatest minds in one room. Every day was just the best day of my life for me.
0: (laughs) I deal with a lot of investors and I have to say your passion level for what you did and do is almost second to none. I love your story so far and you haven't even touched on really how your story came across my desk. How do you want to start talking about SLC 6A1?
1: Like a lot of people, it wasn't so easy for my husband and I to have kids We went through two years of IVF, and finally I was pregnant with not one, but two beautiful little babies, and we were so excited. And even all of Janice was so excited. I'm five foot two, 100 pounds. I can just tell you that it didn't look too good. (laughs) I looked like Humpty Dumpty with some toothpicks sticking out of me and could barely walk at the end. I had to be rolled around in my office chair to go to meetings. Certainly could never pick up a pen or pencil. And it was just fun to take guesses on how big my stomach was going to get. (laughs) Soon after, I had the twins, and they were early. I'm a planner, so I never expected to go into labor early, but if you could picture the way I looked, you would not be surprised at all. I was actually laying in bed crying because I had a management meeting with TJ Maxx the next day. And I was crying, thinking about how I was going to walk from my car into the office, because I really couldn't walk at this point. And every time I fell asleep, I kept having this reoccurring meeting, I was just stuck on the sidewalk. And it was embarrassing. And then all of a sudden, I knew I was in labor. And here came the twins. And I think every parent, on this podcast can just picture the first time you hear your baby cry for the first time and how beautiful that sound is and how in the blink of an eye, everything that mattered prior, the only thing that matters is your little baby and
0: you didn't even know your heart
1: could explode like it did.
0: Oh, I'm getting chills thinking about it. You described it so perfectly because the biggest moment of my life, I remember that first sound when my son made a cry. It was really beautiful. So they were healthy and both of them did well during the delivery. They were healthy
1: and they were beautiful. I like to joke that if they had been on the cover of People magazine, we would have sold more copies than the Brangelina twins. They were born on March 27th, 2017. At around four months, I noticed that Maxwell wasn't developing like his twin sister, Riley. And he had a really strange set of symptoms. He was kind of floppy and he had never reached for a toy ever, not once. And if you put something in his hand, he would drop it. It was like he couldn't use his arms. And I'd go to the doctor and they'd say, you're a crazy new mom and boys are slower than girls. But I knew in my gut that I was wrong. And the doctor's tone changed slowly over a couple of months. And I could see the fear in their eyes. And so I started calling doctors at Children's and being his advocate to get into the right doctors. I would say by nine months, I knew something was terrible. And every doctor would say, I've never seen something like this. And I just kept hoping it's because he's going to wake up and use his hands or not be floppy. And that wasn't happening. And finally, it was the ophthalmologist that broke some bad news to me. He said, every parent brings their child in to see the ophthalmologist because they think something's wrong with the baby's eyes and they're not reaching for things. And he said, and your child's eyes look fine, but his brain probably is not. And I've seen this a thousand times. Just don't be prepared for your child to live. You're going to need to go through genetic testing and they'll eventually find it, but it's never good news.
0: How do you respond to such a statement?
1: I lost all feeling in my body. The blood rushed from my head and from my arms, and I was trying so hard for my voice not to crack because I needed to understand why he said that and what he was saying to me so I could take in more information. I was also defensive because I was holding my beautiful little boy that had never done anything wrong and he's telling me may not live. And I just wanted to say, you're wrong. Maxwell is perfect. I didn't even tell my husband because there was no point in both of us feeling what I was feeling. And one of us needed to be strong. And if he had been there, I think it actually would have been worse for our family and so I just cried all night until we got an answer. And finally, it was probably three or four months later, the doctors called and said, come in as soon as you can. We have an answer and we need to talk to you. And so we rushed over to Children's Hospital and we were led to a bad newsroom. And there was a room full of doctors with really sad faces. And they said, Amber, your child has a disease called SLC-6A1. It's a rare neurological disease. We really know nothing about it.
0: How did they discover that it was that? How did they discover that Maxwell did have SLC-6A1?
1: They had to sequence his entire genome.
0: And so in the bad newsroom, you're given this information, which I guess is helpful because before that you didn't have anything to go on. What next?
1: Well, I was confused. I was expecting a disease. And so I looked back and I said, Okay, what's the name of the disease? And they said, SLC six A one. And I said, No, that sounds like a flight number. I don't understand. They said, No, it's too rare to have a name, so it's known by its genetic location. So I was annoyed they were speaking so slowly. So I took out my phone and Googled it and there were no results found. I can't describe how alone it feels, like the feeling of complete isolation. When you Google something, you always get a result. Any random set of numbers and letters gets a result. And there was nothing for this horrible disease that was affecting my son. And so I said, well, tell me what you know. And they said, well, it's a neurological disease. We've found this paper from Denmark written about it. There's only 34 other known patients in the world with it. There is a movement disorder, speech apraxia. And it looks like kids with this disorder suffer from a really debilitating form of epilepsy. And your son will never
0: live a normal life.
1: Go do the best you can. We don't even know how long he'll he'll live. What did you do? Oh, my goodness. I was shaking. I couldn't even hold a pen. I was devastated. I think everybody thinks they've already been through the darkest moment of their life in some form. Maybe it's the death of a loved one or something tragic you went through personally, but I can just tell everybody there's nothing as dark. Is hearing that about your child. There's nothing, nothing can ever compare. And I knew I had my entire life to cry and grieve and let that sink in. And I could see my husband's shoulders start shaking. And I just grabbed Mark's hand and I said, don't listen to them. This is not our future. And so I looked right back at them. And I said, if this were your child today, What would you do in the next hour, the next week? And then I'm going to call you for more advice. And they looked at that article from Denmark and said, call these scientists. And I said, all right, I'll call Denmark. And that's exactly what I did. I started with the authors from that article and I asked them everything. Tell me about this disease. Tell me about those other 34 patients. I need to find them. Who else can help me? Who else should I be calling? And what I found was that in pretty short order, this disease is caused by one gene in Maxwell's body that isn't working correctly. And there is a technology in place today to actually cure diseases that are monogenic. I was given more references, And I started calling more scientists. In fact, I called thousands over the course of two months. I called people in Asia and Australia at night, people in Europe in the early morning, and people in the U.S. during the day. The second I received Maxwell's diagnosis, I went back to Janet and I said something really terrible has happened and I need to quit. I need to leave right now. I'm never coming back. And I'm sorry, I can explain later, but just make sure to tell HR. And my boss said, wait, don't move. Let me call HR. And HR came in and I said, my son has been diagnosed with a horrifying disease. It doesn't even have a name. I'm shaking. I had to take an Uber here. I can't drive, but I need to leave. And they said, slow down. We're going to work with you. Go take care of your family. We'll leave you a voicemail later and we'll work with you. All of our resources, consider them your resources. The investment community has you.
0: Your company sounds amazing and so supportive. That is wonderful to hear. I cannot
1: tell you enough how supportive the people at Janice Henderson have been to me. Their biotech team, led by Andy Acker and Dan Lyons, they are not only incredible investors and work endlessly for their investors every day, but their hearts are so big and they're really driven by their desire to help people. I narrowed down my search to five people that could truly cure this disease. Give me a shot on goal, And as you can imagine, these people were extremely difficult to reach and they weren't returning my phone calls or emails. I had a front runner, so I would send him snacks via Uber Eats every single day and make it really, really weird. Every single day <laughs> at 2 p.m., cookies would show up from Panera or the corner bakery. And I would text the Uber driver and say, can you just write on a sticky note, heart, comma, Maxwell, and deliver them and just leave? And finally, this poor man called me back and said, Amber, we can't help you. I'm really busy. I just don't have the resources right now. I would love to, but I'm on my way to a conference. And I said, well, that's fine. You know, I go to so many conferences too. And I wasn't, I had not showered in four days. I was hallucinating, exhausted. So in my exhaustive blur. I found he was going to a conference at the National Institute of Health, and just like in the movies, I called my husband and I said, Mark, you're on twin duty. I'm driving to the airport right now. I'm catching a red eye to DC. I have to go. And I showed up to that conference, had no ticket, and I just showed up and they said, you're not supposed to be here. Like, where's your ticket? Who are you? And I said, do you not know who I am? I'm with the keynote and he's about to start speaking and I'm late <laughs> oh my and they believed me. And I walked in and there was this poor scientist sitting in the front row. And I had never thought what I would do once I was sitting next to him. I hadn't planned that far ahead. There was nobody else in the front row, but I went and sat down next to him and just stared stoically forward, telling myself to play it cool and deciphering next steps. And he turned to me and he said, Hi, Amber. And I turned and I said, Oh, hi, Steve. What a small world. (laughs) Let's go to dinner tonight. And he said, Okay. And after that four hour dinner, we had a plan to cure this disease
0: together. That's one of the best stories I've ever heard. And it went by so fast. There's so many questions I have in that from the Uber snacks. But like, how long were you sending him snacks for every day?
1: You know, he wasn't the only one. I probably had a thousand dollar bill with Uber over the course of one month. There were plenty of people who didn't want to call me back, but I think that being offered a snack at 2 p.m. transcends everything else that's important in life. People are rendered helpless when cookies are put before them.
0: So I'm glad it worked and it was effective. But so how did that dinner go? What did you guys talk about? Or how did you structure the conversation?
1: I said, I know you have the ability to do this. And I need you to take a bet on me as a parent. I am the most dedicated parent you've ever seen. I've worked very hard for everything in my life. And I will put everything in me toward making you successful. If money is the problem, let's raise it. It's my opinion that if a solution can be cured by money, then it's not really a problem. We can do that. It's matters of the heart that can never have a solution. I can bring all of the scientific expertise for you and I can quarter back all of this for you. I don't even care if I have to organize tasks for you at home to spend more time on this in your career. And he said, "Okay, well that's exactly what we need to do." Be prepared to raise between seven and ten million dollars by yourself. There really is no government funding that can be processed and be ready for my lab by the time Maxwell will need it. Government doesn't move fast enough for children that have such a short timetable as Maxwell. Two, I know how to fix it, but I'm not the expert in this disease. You need to get all of the thought leaders in one room for me in the next four months. And he said, three, I want you to know what you're signing up for. I've worked with other parents before. The stress of this is enough to make anybody crack. And you have to know that you, first and foremost, are a mother of a very sick child. And this is the most Unfair process in the entire world that you're responsible for fundraising and you have to become a scientist and an event coordinator and everything else. And I don't know how people do this, but just know what you're signing up for. To lay this out for listeners, two months after Maxwell's diagnosis, I had the scientists on board. Three months after Maxwell's diagnosis, we had genetically engineered mice with his disease breeding. Three and a half months after Maxwell's diagnosis, we had our first conference with 50 scientists from all over the world in the same room. And it was difficult because scientists their calendars are mapped out far in advance, so I piggybacked off of another big conference that was happening and stole their people and I made it competitive. I'd call one scientist and say Listen, I was going to offer the speaking slot to insert your biggest competitor, but I really enjoyed your publication in 2016 about blah, 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 and they all took the bait. I got them in the same room. And last year, we had a conference with over 100 scientists and biotechs and investors.
0: The whole time, my mouth is just open in in awe of how fast you're working and how effectively the whole process is, but... Two, three, four months, all that progress, a lot of conference and thought leaders gathering together, mice with the same gene as Maxwell. What next?
1: Well, we've been moving at the speed of light since then. We have injected mice and tested the therapy in mice. Another important thing we did is that the initial mice we were working on just had the disease, but actually didn't have Maxwell's specific mutation. And to give listeners an idea of how important these mice are. These mice are crazy expensive. Each mouse can cost anywhere between 50,000 and 150,000. And I'm sure everybody's getting an idea for how expensive this whole process is. But luckily some very very kind scientists in China offered to make a mouse of Maxwell for very cheap. (laughs) They offered to do it for free, in fact, because they had been following my story. And in China, there's a lot less red tape than in the U.S. And so the mouse was actually finished last fall, right when COVID was hitting China. And the mouse was done and it was very hard to get it out of China. And I was so mad because we had come this far and we needed to test it in Maxwell's mouse. So I actually was frustrated at how slow the process was moving, and I decided to just smuggle it back myself. PSA has never cut my hairspray. I travel with much more than four ounces of hairspray. <laughs> I never even take it out of my bag or in a separate container. It's never gotten caught. And so I said, I'll just put these mice into my pocket in a little cage with holes in them, And I'm just going to chance it. And if I go to jail for a while, I'm going to have to use this experience as fundraising. But as long as the mice can make it to the University of Texas, then we're good. I was all set to go to China, prepared for any situation. And at the last minute, some wonderful Chinese scientists that work at Vanderbilt were able to WeChat, the scientists in China, and the mouse was just able to come on Uh, commercial airliner.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Because the movie that's going to be made of your story, they didn't want to go that route of the smuggling and the prison that might have come. So they're like, you know, we'll give you a freebie on this one. And so that sounds great. So the mice are then in the States at the end of, was it last year? Yep. End of last year.
1: And they've been tested on. We've also had numerous other scientific breakthroughs. So this is so important to mention because This started as a quest to obviously help my little Maxwell, but our story has really transcended my little family. And we have the opportunity to impact a multitude because with all of this attention on this rare disease, what's happened is the story of a lot of rare diseases. A disease messes with the wrong mother and there are all these other opportunities. And research has been published now showing that SLC6A1 is the 10th cause of autism, the 6th cause of epilepsy, and it's the body's most important inhibitory neurotransmitter. If that's misfiring, you can imagine all of the things that go wrong. So we were able to connect with people specializing in psychiatric disorders. We play a major role in schizophrenia and bipolar disorder in ADHD. So the research we're doing on SLC 6A1 will advance cures for people with these other conditions. And in 10 years, this disease will be on a newborn screening panel. Children will be diagnosed with this before they leave the hospital and doctors will go in and say, your child has Horrible disease called SLC6A1. And we are going to treat them with a one and done gene replacement therapy, and they are never going to get sick. You will never know they have it. This was one strange story in their life. Go on, be happy.
0: If you could rewind a little bit, you said you'd have to raise seven to 10 million. How does that work and why?
1: Well, I held 86 fundraisers last year. I'm constantly fundraising and telling my story. We need to find more people with this disorder. We've raised close to $2 million in $25 increments through my GoFundMe milestones for Maxwell, through the website milestonesformaxwell.org, through the Huffington Post BuzzFeed. Really, this is going to take. <laughs>
0: not had a village, an armada of people to get us to the finish line. How time-sensitive is it for you? This is time-sensitive,
1: and it has been extremely hard because of COVID. COVID has put the brakes on everything. It's very hard to fundraise when the world needs a GoFundMe, and there are so many urgent causes available right now. I will say the very sad part of COVID is that one big part of the population that has suffered is children with rare diseases. Maxwell went from having 12 therapy sessions a week to zero overnight because of social distancing. He's regressing. He's losing the skills he's fought so hard to gain. Our labs shut down due to social distancing. They had to reduce the number of mice in our colonies, because nobody was going in to feed the mice. Then on top of that, now all of government funding is being tunneled toward COVID funding, a direct reduction in funding for rare diseases. We have engaged with the FDA, we're so enthused about it, but even the FDA now is really only focusing on COVID. And there's nowhere for us to turn. We're just considered too rare to care by the medical industry, the pharmaceutical industry, and now government. I can start moving some of our work into contract research organizations and for-profit companies that have been able to stay open through the shutdown. That does cost more money, which requires more fundraising. We've been able to pivot some of our work, and we're also making more efficient plans for when things open that we can hit the ground running faster.
0: Can you share with our listeners how the funding gets distributed? So what goes into treatment or clinical trials?
1: Yeah, so it kind of goes through a couple stages. It goes into preclinical testing, which we're out of, and then into toxicology, where you have another lab collaborate, everything you've seen, and then manufacturing of the drug and the actual clinical trial. All of those steps can be done in parallel if we have enough money. But right now, we're doing them
0: chronologically because
1: we can't fund everything at once.
0: And so without funding, you can't continue treatment? That's right. We're pretty stuck.
1: It's so frustrating when only money is standing in your way.
0: And how does it work when you get the funding? Because I know Amber Freed seems to keep going until things happen. How does it work? Does gene replacement therapy, is it as simple as replacement done and he's healthy? Or what's the process once he does the gene replacement?
1: It actually is that simple. So you put a working copy of the gene into a virus that doesn't make humans sick. That gene is administered through a spinal tap, and it goes through your spinal fluid to your brain. And it's a smart virus. So it only finds the copies of your DNA that aren't working correctly, and it stacks good copies on top. And what that does is, if the pipe was halfway clogged, it unclogs the pipe. And the neurotransmitter is able to freely move through the body, and it's a virus. So much like a vaccine, it's permanent and it's once and done. You never need to have it again.
0: How does it work? Every incremental dollar, $25, $1,000, does it help move it along or you have to get to a certain stage of fundraising for it to move forward?
1: Every little $25 helps us keep the lights on for one more day on all of these activities.
0: So what do you do every day to move the ball forward when so much is out of your hands? I think
1: for me, what has driven my success is being resilient. It's so important to be resilient. And I think every day is full of a small series of failures, but it's recovering from those failures and just pivoting, learning from your failures. I think I learn from my failures much more than I do my successes and taking that information and becoming stronger and finding the people that can help you.
0: Your story is so motivating on so many levels. What are you most proud of so far?
1: You know, I won't be very happy or proud until Maxwell is treated. That is what success is for me. It's very resolute. It's very black or white. He needs to not have this disease anymore. And Someday, I'll be very happy when nobody ever has this disease. But for this time being, I'm just happy that we've been able to keep moving and keep things going and help other families in a similar position that are handed a horrible report like us and let them know that there is hope. And also... Hoping that I change this process for everybody that comes after us. It is very important to me that we are the disruptive technology and over time the cost of this therapy goes down and no family ever has to suffer like we did.
0: Is that your little is that Riley in the back? <laughs> so cute.
1: It's Maxwell actually. Oh that's is- he's up from nap and he's not very happy
0: terms of health and how is he doing?
1: It could be better. He is screaming a lot. He screams like four hours a day and it's something neurological. He's in pain and we don't know why. You can't really go to the hospital right now if it's not COVID related. We can't see the doctors we need to. It's just a really, really tough situation as a parent and there's not a worse feeling not being able to help your baby.
0: Well, I hope that this show gives a bit more exposure to it, not that it needs much help because it seems like you're such a phenomenal PR person for it. So I hope that any listener out there, if they can help, absolutely. Just for the namesake of the show, I certainly ask everyone just to talk about failure. And you've talked so much about struggle. Instead of asking what's one of your most memorable or impactful struggles or failures, can you maybe share with our listeners... Any tips of how to digest and react to a moment of struggle? Because it seems like you were faced with so much of that from childhood, from being an early mom with your sisters, and certainly now with SLC 6A1 and Maxwell's Health. How do you process bad news and how do you move forward?
1: I think you take a deep breath and realize that things are never as good or as bad as they seem. Never. The high highs are never as high as they were in retrospect and the low lows are never as low as they were in retrospect. And with time, I think brings clarity and we all become stronger and better from every mishap. But when this whole thing is done, I'm a big person for positive vision. And I want to have a very big party and bring some really interesting DJs in. I want to have Vanilla Ice. I want to hear Ice Ice Baby. I want to bring back some old school singers and have everybody that's helped me along the way celebrate with me and help other families going through this. And then I probably will be in Aruba with a mojito for at least two weeks. And I may be semi-catatonic during that time. But I'm very much looking forward to it.
0: I'm looking forward to it, too. I know it'll happen just given all of your passion and resilience behind this. Where can people find out more about you and Maxwell's disease?
1: Go to milestonesformaxwell.org. You can follow my blog on Instagram. We're milestonesformaxwell. We're on Twitter, on Facebook. And Argo Fund Me has a blog, and that is Milestones for
0: Maxwell as well. Amber, thank you so, so, so much for sharing your story. I have no doubt that the listeners will just fall in love with you and your passionate story. Thank you so much for joining.
1: Thank you. Have such a good day.